Welcome to our podcast series. Today, our guest is more Rubenstein. She is like a Pandora box. She constantly will surprise you. Moore was born in Israel and studied computer science in high school. Her start in the world of data began early in her life when she enlisted in the Israeli army in an intelligent unit. There she worked with lots of data and she was exposed to the importance of being ethical with the data because the military, as we can imagine, holds immense power. In a later stage of her life, she lived in the UK and there she has participated in a variety of initiatives related to the world of open data and amplification, which we agreed is a much better word than empowerment. Both see empowerment as having a patronizing connotation because it seems that you can give power to people. But we discussed that people have already the power. What needs to be in place are the right social conditions so that people's agency can be amplified and enacted. So we're going to use the word amplified instead of empowered. More embodies activism from a feminist perspective and her overarching goal is to contribute to make the world a just place. There is much more to discover about her sharp and down-to-earth insights into the world of open data, civic technology, and human amplification for a just society. So please join me in this episode, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Is that, um, and I guess that's how practical things come to existence. You start to think about them theoretically first. So we have been thinking, you know, how can you um, teach if that, I don't like that word because I'm, I think we share and we, we convey ideas more than teaching. But if you are with a group of educators or students, which would be the best way that you can um, teach them the critical aspect of data and not so much the other aspects. We think they are important as well, so the technical um, skills that you need. So I think you are a human being and a woman that encapsulates this criticality towards data, as, as I think you embody that, at least so I see it with the work that you do and that I have read um, that you do. So I'm very pleased that you're here with us. And to begin with, I, I would like to, if you can present yourself and maybe tell us a bit um, what brought you really to the world of data and to the world of data as you see it? If, if, you, if we can start with that, that would be great. Oh, thank you for, every, for all of that. I feel very good now. Uh, <laughs> so I am Moa Rubinstein. I grew up in Israel. So as a woman in Israel, I had to uh, enlist to the Israeli army when I was 18. Uh, and I found myself in an intelligence unit. Uh, so wow. very secret, but I've basically been working with data uh, ever since. I studied computer science when I was in high school, so I had the skills from there. Um, I, ha I had pretty decent English back then to an Israeli, so I've been taking him to the to army to do some big data analysis that I haven't done ever since. Um, wow, more. I think my, my work starts from there. So uh, I know how data can be used for good and bad in both ways. Um, and I know what can be done in technology and data if we let people exploit it, but I also know what can be done if we do it for good. 
um, and what can be done if you have really good um, manpower. And to be fair, my first knowledge about ethics and data also started in the army because the army, while it, it sounds very, um, you know, violent and aggressive, we had a lot of ethics sessions around how do you deal with data when you have all this power to deal with it. Um, <clears throat> very grateful yeah. for that. I can imagine, um, yeah. That. But I started my way in um, in the army with data, and I haven't. I've stopped for two years to to do some youth work uh, in South Africa, which I'm grateful for because I think that helped me to think of literacy in different ways. Of when course. you work with youth, of course, it's you, you have to be creative. You can't put them in front of a of a board and teach them, right? Uh, you can. They just don't like it. So if you really want to achieve uh, stuff in informal education, you need to think outside. Of the box. So I'm very grateful for the two years I was a youth worker. And I think those those years, those seven years of my life, uh, helped me to the rest of my career, if I have to to be honest. Yeah, of uh, course. It sounds so, highly interesting that I I I mean the 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 military and the ethics is a really good combination because I guess that and they hold the power, don't they? I the military force holds a lot of power. Yeah. And um, yeah, that, so ethics has there a, a, a lot of weight at the same time. So it's and that's what I when I read your work and when I see your presentations in YouTube, which I have been doing. So, you know, to to get a bit of what you really think and how, how do you do things? That is what comes across. I think you embody what you say incredibly much. And, and I think that that is powerful because it comes, you know, it comes through all along it's just very strong your message and so now i understand where did that the, does that come from and what are you at the at the moment what are you what are you doing so at the moment i work as the head of data strategy at parkinson's uk i'm filling in uh for uh the wonderful jesse Mears, who is on maternity leave and we are basically trying to build uh better um foundations for data analytics across the charity uh, which is exciting. I've been working in the charity sector for the last decade, uh, and it's always interesting to see how different charities looks at data. Uh, and before that, I worked at 360 Giving, which is a data standard for philanthropists in the UK. They already have 180 um, foundations and trusts sharing their data about who gives the money where, which is amazing because they don't have to do it. They do it because they want to, and they do it because they want to have more collaboration and understanding by data. Yeah. So it's powerful. But it's interesting to move from someone who work with trust and foundations, again, a lot of power, because uh, money, <laughs> to yeah. people who are working on services on the ground. Even though uh, Parkinson's UK is a very big charity in the UK compared to others, um, it, still, it still doesn't have a lot of money compared to trust and foundations. So how, how do you work with data? How do you put data in? Uh, I'm lucky that I went into an organization that already had a lot of data uh, foundations, but they still need a bit more. So it's really good to see the differences and going from one to another and trying to understand what are the difficulties of data culture. And I guess the data culture goes well with data literacy and open education. Like how do we create a culture of learning all the time? Because data is learning and is questioning. So how can we bring it to students to remind it to teacher, et cetera? So even working in the charity sector, it's pretty cool. Uh, and I'm doing a bit of data literacy as well. I'm working with the data collective, uh, with data kind in the UK to create basically 
a better collaboration between charities in the UK to learn on data and data literacy comes there as one of the main issues, but also time. Like, do we actually have time to look at data or can we just need to do our work and plow with it? It's a very hard question when you don't have the budget. Yeah. And when you when when you say data literacy, what do you mean by that? If you can explain um, for an audience that might not know that what what is what is entailed in data literacy? So when we speak about literacy as a whole, right, usually it's about how we read and write. Um, when we speak about numeracy is how do we know to deal with numbers? When we speak about data literacy, it's both and more. Um, so it's how do we know to have enough statistical knowledge to understand what data means to us and what it doesn't? How do we have enough knowledge to tell stories with these data and make sure that the data actually makes sense and that we are not corrupting it uh, or corrupting the message. Um, and then there's also other skills that we need to know besides statistics and telling stories. It's also the technical skills of dealing with data. And a lot of people are afraid of the technical skills, but a lot yeah. of the time they're not as hard as 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 we think they are, because you can do most of your data analysis, I believe, with a, a really good spreadsheet. Um, so I think it's like understanding what you can and can't do with data is one, but also understand how to work with data is another one. And would you think that there is um, an ability to include in that literacy how to interrogate the data? Because um, I have read in your work that you you have done some work in the feminism space um, and I see and I have read there is a lot of misrepresentation. It has always been in relation with data because of many reasons that we don't need to, um, you know, to expand on that because I think that's quite um, already out there. <clears throat> But I think interrogating data sets in the sense of how representative they are or who are they not representing or whose data is not out there, so who is invisible in the world of data or through data? What what are your thoughts or your experience in, in that? So maybe let's explain what feminist data is or data feminism is. Uh, it's starting from a great book uh, named Data Feminism yeah. by Catherine D. Ignazio and Lauren F. Klein. Yeah. Catherine has been doing a lot of work as well on data literacy on our own. I'll say that. But Data Feminism is a book that basically explains the um, the way that we look at data in an intersectional way and why we need to do more often of it and where we have missing numbers and how we incorporate intersectionality into our data analysis all the time. And I guess when we teach people about data and we tell them what it can't and can't do, we also need to teach them or share with them, because I, I agree, it's not always teach, it's a lot more share with them. What happens when you don't look at specific population? What happens if you overlook on specific population? What happens when you don't ask the people with the data how this data is relevant to them? Um, it's also try to speak in who holds the power to collect data. Yeah. Data is also power, right? Yeah. If I had enough money to collect data on people, What does it mean if I haven't looked at specific one? What does it mean if I've done a whole analysis about population, but then I didn't really look on the specific of a population? And it's not only about color, although color is important, ethnicity is important. It's also about people with disabilities yeah. um, or people from the LGBTQI plus community. So it's a lot of different intersections that we need to look at 
in order to understand how to do better data analysis and collection and storytelling. So it's encompassing of how we're making sure that we're not missing anyone. And, and it, working for somewhere like um, Parkinson's UK, for example, has really taught me what does it mean when you are serving a population that have a condition, a health condition, and they need help. Like, how do we make sure that we have a good data about them as well so we can offer them not only um, services, but how can we offer them better medicine, for example? Yeah. So there's a lot integrated in it and trying to think about the different ways when doing data. It's really, really strong. And I think that having more people involved in the conversation about data and who holds the power, the better. Problem that we have now, though, is that a lot of our infrastructure has been built by brilliant white men from the global north. They are brilliant, but they are basically white men that have a very different approach. And sometimes when you tell them, oh, but you are a white man, you haven't included everyone, they get very offended because they did try to do it from a good place. Yeah. But I think acknowledging that there's a lot of point of view missing yeah. while doing data infrastructure and data as a whole is the first step of trying to make the issue better. But we're not there yet all the time, which is sad. But if you think about it, all of our data foundation is built by other people who had privilege and power to do that. So, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, one thing um, about um, who is represented in the data is I'm um, these kind of, you know, ethnicity, race, um, is, 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 these are categories. But I always worry or think about what happens with rural communities, for example, smallholder small farmers in rural communities, let's say in Kenya, in Ghana, in let's say Africa as a continent, um, who are struggling because of climate change, because of um, the, the pests that eat their um, <clears throat> crops, and they don't have the power to, they maybe collect their data because they do that in their own way, which I think is, is something to, 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 you know, to learn from. But I feel as if there would be more access to these communities and understand what are their struggles and maybe collect data that can then help and inform policy so that then their livelihood is improved through the policy that that data fed is a process that I'm not sure it's happening. And the smallholder farmer is one one community. There are many others, you know, if if we can maybe see indigenous communities in in any of, you know, Canada, Venezuela, Brazil, you, you, Bolivia, you name it. Um, I feel that those groups are always very marginalized. Now, I think, are we wanting to include them because we think that that is important or should they be included because there are things that they are missing? I, You know, I ask myself this, <clears throat> sorry, and I'm not sure you being in the world of data and working with many groups, what are your thoughts about this? So I've, I think that it's also us to have a conversation with people, even if they don't understand completely what data mean, at least it's having the conversation and see where it catch them uh, in a place that it can speak to them and how we can basically all work together, not necessarily collect the data at the end, but work together to get into best results. So I had a, I had a friend once who explained to me why indigenous data can be really bad if we share it. Like, why would we do it as open data? She told me, as if we know that someone else can take advantage of our land. Yeah. So why would we open that data? Yeah. And she's right. 
But back then I was like, no, it, it can help you as well because then other communities will open the data and, and you'll know. She said, no, 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 this is definitely not going to help us. She said, this is definitely going to um, make us in a bad situation because someone with more power and more time will take this data and take our land away from us. So we want to have yeah. control over it. And in the beginning I was like, why would they like to have control? This is a bit like childish. But as I grew older, I realized, no, they need this control. It's really, mm, really important. Mm. Um, because other groups have control of other stuff, and if they can have control over their knowledge, that's a good thing. So we also need to to make sure that we let people who usually don't have control and don't have the power to own it in certain places, even if it means that we won't get the data, because they need that power, and we can't give it to them anywhere else. And yeah. I think as a community, we need to learn how to um, work together and share data that can help them together rather than tell them, no, you need to share data now yeah, because we're going to give you money, so you need to give us this data. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a, whole, there's a whole conversation. There's actually a big, not big, but there is a really uh, prominent um, indigenous open data community um, and data community, and they also wrote on the state of open data, which is a book that I helped to edit. And it's really interesting to see how different perspectives from this, different indigenous people coming to somewhat the same conclusion and how we need to let people give people tool we need to teach people how to fish and not necessarily yeah. fish for them yeah no, no. we need to let people go through their journey with data specifically if they're coming from a marginalized group and decide how they want to go on this journey even if it's going to take years and even if it seems like we're going to lose a lot of data that can help them we need to give people to be own owning that yeah, yeah and a place where i've been and I for think years, um, colonial, colonialized, oh, English, uh, <laughs> colonial places, um, it's important. So, yeah, and it's not an easy thing to do. Like, it's really easy for me to say here now, yeah, we need to let them do that. But do they have the tools? Do they want to have the tools? Maybe they're afraid to have the tools, right? Because they've been burned before. That is so, my question. Do they want to be part of this data kind of movement story? That's where I think the question really, the, the whole thing needs to start. Do you want, um, you know, do you want to know more about the world of data? Do you think it can favor you, you know, and what, what are the risks, of course, because in farming, for example, there is a lot of, of risk in, in taking the knowledge of these um, rural farmers who have a wealth of knowledge. But that, that is, of course, their, their strongest asset in order to have, you know, big yields and have a good farming um, outcome. So it's, it's, I think you're right. I think it's really holding back of power and, and letting them to make their choices and their decisions. Do you want, you know, do you want to be in this world of collecting data and, and maybe also showing them what is what you can then get and, and respect that that data, as you just said, is not open. It's your data, but you can have it and it will improve your work in certain aspects you know it it there there are a lot of initiatives um kenya is is quite um i would say pioneering all of that open data and farming but i agree with you sometimes i'm afraid of one taking over and just thinking that as we know how to handle data and we understand more the technicalities and the power of data that we try to put a vision on them which is not necessarily the vision they want it's not the glasses they want to wear it's not and in some places they do want to be represented and they do not necessarily like let's say indigenous community but if we look at a um, ethnic group in a very big um, urban society right which is a common it's a more common script everywhere in the global south and in the global north um, and they want to be more involved and they want to basically make sure that they're getting measured. They don't have the tools today to know even how to ask for it. 
They don't have the advocacy forum to come for them to speak to government and tell them, I want to be represented in a different way, in a way that you measure me. Um, so there's a lot of work that we need to do, not as like, oh, here, I'm coming helping you on a, on a white horse. I'm your data warrior. I'm going to make sure that you're going to get uh, represented. No, we need, to, we need to speak to people and understand how we can create solutions together. And this is, for example, when standards come into a very big way, right? Because um, some, most of the standards that we're working on are on government standards, like how government measure X, Y, and Z. But if we don't speak about um, taxonomies, even though I don't like taxonomies, but if we don't speak about taxonomies and how people are being labeled, if we don't speak about the standard itself, which is a very boring topic, to be fair, but it's actually pretty important to know how a line is described, um, if we don't let people even know that these things exist. So what are we doing? Are we still creating an elite that's working on the basics of data? Yeah. And, 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 and always going to be this elite? Or are we going to basically go and say, oh, guys, you, I know that you have a lot of problems. You are like have poverty. You don't have a place to sleep. Like your education sucks. But let me teach you about data. So it's all like, it's like two polar ways. So how do you, how do you find the middle way of working with people um, slowly, slowly, to make sure that we actually have good outcomes when it's come to data, that it's collected by government, by social sector, by um, private sector. But how do we work together and getting more people into this journey? That's a question that it's hard to answer. Yeah, I think your 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 point is, is, is really opening my own um, views on this. And I think it is really about having people having them in the in the table of the conversation more than bringing solutions to them is involving them in the creation of solutions because i think that is where the power really is um yeah, yeah you're absolutely right and um i um so we're very interested in our um kind of project and and the group of people working there in data ethics and I was wondering myself um, about two things. One, I know you have done some work with civic technologies. Um, and I would like you, if you could explain to the audience that not necessarily know what civic technologies are, could you explain what they are? And then how do you see an ethical approach to data and ethics in the world of data and civic technologies enhancing so to say, so civic technologies enhancing data ethics. But can you explain first what um, civic technologies are so people, you know, that don't know? So when I was in university, I used to work for a civic tech organization. So it's a great example uh, in Israel. But uh, civic tech is technology that is created by people for the public or sometimes for the government. But it's usually um, done either by volunteers or by, or by civil society um, to create technologies that can help public to go forward. So there's a lot of civic technology that is around parliament monitoring. There's a lot of but budgeting monitoring. There's some that is really about the environment and how we can basically measure our own pollution. So it can be very varied. It can be all the way from building hardware to building software volunteers from being paid for by grants usually. Sometimes this can also be commercial. So it's a really big plethora of things about people creating software not for making more money but to make better services for example or um better world if you say if yeah. you really want to be optimistic yeah so it's really big but um there's a lot of ethical points uh, changes there and as a as a group that started like 15 years ago i think civic tech learned a lot about how to work with and not for which is a really great 
uh, quote by Laurenel McCann. They have uh, a lot of work about how to build with, not for people, technology and services. But I guess that when we're looking at ethics, I actually like to call it justice lately, not ethics, because stuff can be ethical, but they not necessarily be the most, they won't bring justice into this. And um, I'm now wrangling the shifting power in tech space with in MOSFEST, which is very interesting um, to see and to learn about what, what we trying to do and we're trying to get a lot of people to discuss about power and justice and ethics and I think that the first things we need to see more about are we creating more justice here in the world rather than are we creating more an ethical world. Ethical is also something that it's really hard to explain something what is ethics compared to what is moral. Ethics is a bunch of um, laws and uh, systems that we're putting in right? Yeah. Um, so how are we making sure that stuff are compared to law? But law doesn't mean that the law is just like make justice as the way we see justice. Um, that, for example, people getting the same resources. And that also is a very subjective thing because I say that, but there's a lot of libertarian out there who will say, no, you will need to fend for yourself. Like if you haven't got this resource, that's your problem. You need to deal with it. Uh, I don't believe in that, but there are people who are like that. So how do we create justice in in data and how do we create the people who are not represented do get a voice and that we are not shining them away? How do we making sure actively that as people with power over data, we are not hurting people? How do we make sure that an algorithm actually is not going to make someone poor rather than better? Right. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, so I think if we look at it in the in the glasses of justice and bring it a bit forward rather than ethics, it will pick more people in. Because ethics is very confusing. Like and, if you and, haven't studied philosophy or law. Or law well, and justice, you know, like. justice has also different ways in which you can look at justice. I, I wonder, do you have any any particular? I was thinking about this yesterday. Really, what is social justice, and, and which is the lens that really serves the world of data? And which are the things in the world of justice and social justice that, that, that are relevant at the moment? Do, do you have anything particular to share about social justice? You know, I don't know, an understanding of it or what do you think is key when you talk about justice? I think the first key is to make sure that everyone is speaking on the same stuff when they speak of justice. Because as you say, yeah. it's like so many different levels. But I think in a lot of cases is how do you make sure that people are getting better, not worse, when you are working on data. Because that can happen a lot. So how do you make sure that you actually represent them in a good way? How do you make sure that they're part of a conversation? How do you make sure that the data now have been put on and told some really good insight, but actually going to go be placed to make changes in the world in order to make these people better, not worse? And that's a question that it's really hard to ask and answer some of the time and work with. And we need to constant reminder in our brain. Every time I work with my team now, I'm trying to think, have we looked at all of the intersections that we need to look now on someone? And that's, I think it's justice. Because if I, every morning say, this is, these are my privileges, I know them. And therefore I will try now when I'm in a privileged position to make sure that I'm looking at people who are not in my position Without trying to be condescending about this, like just trying to make sure that I'm not missing them, yeah. I think that's a win. Um, it's but it's hard to to remember that every morning, and I think it's also hard to everyone to to look at it and say, "But I'm condescending now. I just told my privileges." But because we're working with data, we're mostly privileged. We need to remember other people, and we need to bring them to the table. That's a really constant 
work. It's a lot of emotional work that needs to be done, but I think it's needed. Yeah, and and how do you see um, feminism <clears throat> as a movement? And and we can go back to you know to black feminism, which is where the work of um, data feminism has been inspired. How can that inform justice? And I think ethics, although it's bigger, but I do think that ethics should be part of, of what we think about when we think about justice. I, so how do you think that feminism can inform that or can can bring some elements to the table when that conversation about justice is going on? I think in that case, we should call it intersectional feminism. So it's the feminism to try to see other intersections of life and not necessarily being a woman. Um, it's exactly. the acknowledgement that looking at women alone in the data or gender alone, or sex alone, the women who will claim that we should just look at the um, sex at birth. We should not look at gender. Um, so I think it's a sectional feminism that looked at a lot more than just gender and sex. It also looks yeah. about sexuality. It looks about disabilities. It looks about religion. It looks about LGBT. Oh, I said that already, but sexuality. Yeah, but yeah. I think it's looking at also ethnicity and color that, that that will help us to to make sure that the data set is not is not skewed but it's again it's something that we need to remind ourselves and i think that if we need to think about like how that's looking at data it's just at the end of the day what the feminism data feminism says it's think about power so at the end of the day when you work with data think about the uncomfortable conversation that you're going to have about this data set and it's not about the quality of the data sets, which is usually the, the uncomfortable conversation that I have every time is that our data is not in good quality, we can't do a lot with it. But it's more about like, this data doesn't look at X, Y, and Z. This data set says something, but I'm not sure it's representative of the whole population. Um, or, oh, this data set actually said that we've done something really bad to a specific population, we should look at it. It's actually, Data feminism teach teaches me to do all of these uncomfortable conversations all the time. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's brilliant. It's uncomfortable to speak to other colleagues and remind them that because it's not like they've done a bad job. It's not like because they think, oh my god, I haven't thought about that. It's fine, I'm a bad person. It's not about that. It's just about realizing that we're not going to move anywhere if we're all going to have really nice conversations all the time. Like, yeah, things happen when you have uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, so that's what I I think that a you know whatever framework is created out there in order to maybe provide some kind of material for teaching. I think that data feminism and and I think about feminism, as you just said, it's much more than the the that women or the women is the core of it. I think the women what happened here with data and in general with feminism. I think women have we have had always uh, been misrepresented in many, many things along, you know, the whole, you, you name it, and there, there, there it is. So I think that women are particularly um, well-suited to think about misrepresentation and what are, the, what are the labels or the groups that are, or the conditions that are not put in the table and that are not in the conversation. So I think that that is, um, yeah, it's really important to think that feminism is more than the gender of the woman in the name of feminism. I think that that's quite important. Um, yeah, yeah, and just a word about that. I think it's also looking always at the power and who holds it. Because even even me as a white woman holds some power. So if, I also need to remember that sometimes I will make mistakes. So the even with data. So what data feminism 
humbly teaching me is that I need to own my mistakes around it and acknowledge them and uh, know when I've done them and haven't looked. And it's happened to me too, even though I will say that every day I'm looking at my privileges, sometimes I do make a mistake. So I think it's also important when we're sharing knowledge about data feminism to acknowledge that, that none of us is, is um, perfect and all of us are going to have mistakes at one point or another. So the way of fixing it is not to hide that or make your ego bigger, is actually to acknowledge and be vulnerable. And I think vulnerability is one of the great thing about feminism is knowing that like you can be vulnerable and that your your work is not bulletproof anytime. Yeah, that absolutely. Someone can always come and take your uh, work as a deck of cards. So we need to be open about our work. We need to document our work in the open. We need to speak to other people. So the more we're realizing that we can make a mistake, hence we need to make sure that someone checking our work, that's, that's a win. Because we don't do that a lot sometimes in data science. We don't have a lot of opportunities sometimes to check data with someone else um, unless it's in academia. So something also to think about. Yeah. And I know you've made some work with cooperatives. Um, and, and I'm wondering here, I'm just kind of putting together three things that I'm very interested in. One is the word empowerment is a word that I am quite reluctant to use because I think that you don't empower people. People have the power already. You just need really to provide and facilitate the right social circumstances or social conditions so that that agency is able to be enacted. So that's that's kind of how I see. The... I agree with you completely. Yeah. I prefer the word amplify. You can amplify. Um, wow, that's brilliant. More amplify. That's brilliant. Amplified. Wow, that's a great. I haven't. I was looking for that word, and I think this is brilliant. But I would like to put together in. So can you put together? Uh, is my question, the amplification that you just meant, um, the cooperative work. And what? What? How can those two work? to make a more social just society or, you know, life or groups, however we want to see it. How do you see those things coming together? So I work with a collaborative, not a co co cooperative. Oh. I work with the data co-op. They used to do a lot of work with me, which was great, yeah. um, on standards. But I work with a collaborative and the idea in the collaborative is bring people together to discuss about data, not to teach them about data. And what's also, the difference, sorry to interrupt you, between co-op and collaboration, so cooperation and collaboration in your eyes? So in England is a very is a very specific term of a co-op. It's basically uh, a way of uh, working together and then everyone is getting the same part of the cake while working. So it's a bit of a, let's say, a business model. Like I'm all part of a co-op and we all basically share our games together equally and we all put work to the co-op. Some people put more than others, but we all share I see. our work. Yeah, but some, most most time in a co-op, people will put the same hand in, but it's a more of a co-op, at least in the UK perspective that I have, is more of that type of work. Yeah. Um, like the co-op in the UK, the supermarkets is the same, on the same principle. Okay. But um, collaboration, then rather than being cooperative, I also when I think about maybe it's my non-English speaker when I speak about cooperative is like someone told me that I need to cooperate with them you know yeah like it's a lot more it's a lot more um passive to me than oh I see I see what you mean yeah well I'm thinking about core and then operation and I think the operation or operationalization is more towards um action kind of 
I think it's a business model. You you put it right. I think that that maybe is is what it entails. Maybe collaboration is not necessarily a business model. Well, yeah, collaborate is a, like maybe again, maybe it's me being with my non-English speaking mind saying, oh, we haven't cooperated on this. What are we going to do now? And then you won't say, oh, we haven't collaborated on this. What are we going to do now? So collaborative is like bring people together to collaborate in their own terms when they're ready um, to do stuff. So it's not like someone leads and then other follows. It's people doing together. I do find that the fact that we are on a pandemic that doesn't allow us to see one another make collaboration not as good as it's done before, yeah. even though we're on the internet and collaboration can be very easy. It's because a lot of people are still a year into this pandemic, not used to work like this. Yeah. So it's something to, it's something to think about, about like how, how we're making it. And I think also the pandemic makes a lot of people very tired emotionally. So yes. for them now to go and collaborate with someone else will have a lot of, um, a lot of like, Emotional labor. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it has. So um... I think I think col collaboration is really good to work with when you have people who are in the same state of mind, in the same emotional state, that can come together and bring some stuff together. But we also need to remember that not everyone collaborates in the same steps, and that's okay. And that some people sometimes just want to lurk, and this is how they learn. So I think we need to remember that there are different ways of collaborating, specifically around data, um, because when you think about it, and when we when we teaching someone as a teacher, right? Um, and when we put someone on the spot and we, um, which is not a good teaching, but <laughs> what they know, they, they can become shy. And like, if they won't know the answer, they will feel really hurt in their ego. And in the data sphere is the same. A lot of people sometimes don't want to say that they don't know yeah. because they think, what will people will think of me if I haven't known what a median is? It's supposed to be very easy what a median is, but I don't know what it is. So I'm just yeah. going to lurk aside and learn. And I think that we need to think of different ways of collaborating, thinking of feminism in the back of my mind, and also how different peoples and culture collaborate together as well. We have different ways of, a lot of people need to create rapport with other people to do that, and not having face-to-face -face makes it really hard. So how do we make sure that we encompassing all of these people and let them collaborate in their own terms, and not just thinking about Oh, at the end of the day, I told my funder that I need to create a resource library and I haven't created anything because people haven't come forward. It's because it's not as easy as it sounds to say to people, here's a collaborative thing. Yeah, absolutely. And people will do more than others. So how do we how do we navigate that in the world of data as well? Yeah, sure. absolutely. And um, being conscious of the time, and I think we are kind of approaching our end, which is sad because the, the conversation is highly interesting more. You're such an interesting person, really. And and you live, um, you 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 talk from, I mean from from the lived experience, which well for me in particular I consider that very powerful. But to to close our program, what would be any in in having had the plethora of experiences that you have had, what would be an advice or what what not an advice? What would you like to share with educators that are taking this OER that are kind of walking their journey into data, into justice, into justice and data, open data. What do you want to share with them that could um, amplify them? I think the one thing is to be vulnerable when you work with data. I know it sounds weird because it's vulnerability, 
and Brenette Brown speaks about it a lot and it's really good. But I think that even as teachers to be vulnerable and see what you can learn from the people you teach uh, about data and remember that data is never a straight line. It's always, I called it the spaghetti monster. The other day. <laughs> it's always very messy and you never go in a straight line from having a question to presentation. You always have to refine your questions. You always have to ask questions and, and to know how to ask questions. Because um, saying put something on a map is not a question. So you need to know how to ask questions. You need to know when you can answer some question. You need to be very humble and like being confident and saying, I don't know. Yeah. And sometimes I'm going to go and look and keep your hands dirty in trying to basically do stuff with the data itself and try to learn by doing or by conversing. I found that a lot more easier than just like follow a tutorial about Python. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, that's what I think that these groups of. So we are going to we're going to we're, we're working in one of our chapters with um, the University of La Republica in Uruguay. And one of the things is having groups where they can really mess around with data, ask, you know, questions around them and, and doing this really as a hands on stuff and making things wrong is just the way to understand how can I make them right? You know, I, I think, as you say, it's just doing stuff that we learn how to do them. It's, it's... Yeah. And if we never if we never fail, we never learn. So uh, if we haven't um, done something and didn't do it right the first time, then it's fine. We'll do it again and again until it will be OK and we'll learn from a mistake and we'll not do it again with data. Or we remember that even I have years of experience with um, with statistics. Always have to go and remind myself how to do a sample size and when a sample size is good. Yeah, always. Ab absolutely. Uh, and it's because it's something that my brain cannot remember, but I need to do it. So it's not a it's not a it's not bad to ask uh, your favorite search engine and a question about data analytics. And it's not bad to ask your colleague about it. I think it makes us more powerful. Yeah. When we know. That sometimes we don't know stuff and we need to look further at them and learn, acknowledge we haven't done it and move forward. Yeah. Try and to, to make it better for the next time. And I think what people think is that, oh, we need to get it straight right up because everyone else does. No, everyone everyone learns by mis having mistakes. Some, there are some savants who know how to do it from the first. Yeah. Them, but we just need to remember we're human. We're going to have mistakes all along. And if we won't try to do it ourselves, and if we won't try to ask people for help, we're never going to uh, understand data. So. And I think the vulnerability is exposing our not knowing in a way that we feel stronger once we have exposed that. And also, it's it's you know when you think about children learning how to walk, well you have a you have a a, a child, um, and they they they're not afraid and they're not embarrassed at all because they're not conscious about what embarrassment means. They just stand up and keep on walking and walking and walking and talking is exactly the same they start to talk saying nonsense and and it is in that practice um and in the perseverance of 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 understanding ah i didn't say it well and i'm you know and they repeat the word a hundred times um until they get it and i think being vulnerable in that sense is very makes us very very robust although it seems a paradox but i think there is there is that brilliant combination yeah, and I think as 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 educator, we want to teach the the people that we're teaching, whether they're kids or students, that they can be vulnerable as well. So if we show that we can be vulnerable and nothing happens, we still know what we're doing. Sometimes, yeah. Then it's okay. I think it's also a way of of giving a message more than just like here is how you do data, right? Yeah, so, yeah. 
And, you know, amplifying educators in a way is providing a space where being vulnerable is safe. I think that's one of the things where you can provide the social conditions that people really then have the, the, the they feel safe enough to then learn. And in the learning, they, they become amplified, which I, I love your word. I think it's great. Well, more. thank you so much. It has been um, incredibly amplifying talking to you. Um, you. And yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going to share some of the things you told me in the conversation. So Burnett, Brown and vulnerability. Uh, I'm going to. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to put some links for people interested in maybe looking further and I'll, I, I shall write to you so we can get these links together and put them then in the in the in the show notes. Brilliant. We can do that. Thank you very much, Moore. I'm very grateful for your time and have a wonderful day and weekend.